0: Welcome to No Cheese Talk. We're your hosts, Nathan and Walter.
1: So, Nathan is recording this podcast from the U.S., Detroit, while I'm speaking to you from the other side of the Atlantic, from the tiny island nation of Malta.
0: And uh, before we get going, uh, we think it's important to give you, the listener, a little more context about who we are and why we're interested in talking about ideology and politics. And I think this has a lot to do with our, our common background together, actually. So how long has it been that we've known each other now, Walter? Like two years, three years? Yeah,
1: two years ago, we started our studies. Uh, Now it's obviously finished. But I have to admit that sometimes I do reminisce about those times when we used to do political science during the day and drinking beer during the night. (laughs) But both were equally full of debates, I must say.
0: Ah, yes, to be young again, full of hopes and dreams for the future.
1: but still unemployed. (laughs) But uh, I think as a word of caution for our listeners, they should be aware that they're listening to two geeks. So uh, I personally always take the philosophical approach and one might say my obsession is ideology uh, for better or for worse.
0: Yeah, at the same time, I, I generally think I take a more applied approach. And I think this contrasts nicely with your lofty
1: abstractions very kind of you Nathan but it it does actually leave uh, for a solid foundation for many discussions
0: yeah and then so here we are when uh, we thought why not upload these discussions in the form of a podcast our goal would be to take a critical approach to this relationship between ideology and the politics that we see unfolding in day-to-day life and ultimately we'd like to cut through some of the proverbial cheese of ideology, and show better what's actually going on underneath. You
1: know, one of the big problems with making this podcast is actually having to listen to your own voice. So how does that make you feel, Nathan? <laughs> okay, psychoanalyst. Well,
0: at least I get to know that you also have to listen to your voice. Oh. But uh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think is a good place to start here?
1: Well, one story that has popped up is this whole Sophagate controversy and what's your take on this
0: particular situation
1: so it's been this viral outrage over the seating arrangements for the meeting between turkey's president and the eu's presidents of the commission and the council so the highlight was that during the photo op there had to be three chairs for each of the three presidents but there were happened to be only two so von der leyen the president of the commission and charles michel the president of the council they pretty much had to race to the only seat that was left for them and (laughs) the result was that von der leyen uh, she didn't make it uh, and you can say she was pretty much sidelined on a minor league sofa
0: well personally i thought that the sofa looked uh, a little bit more comfortable than the chair but I guess uh, in the circumstances, it was best to be next to Erdogan. Uh, so naturally, van felt like she drew the short straw here, like you say, but um, I, I mean, maybe even betrayed. I mean, that's, that's how it came out later. Uh, you know, kind of like... Um, Uh, sibling rivalry between the uh, different institutions in the EU.
1: Seems like there's a bit of tension there.
0: So what do we make of van der Leyen's tweet later on then, uh, in which she stated that uh, her visit to Turkey showed how far we still have to go before women are treated as equals always and everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so what what do you think that that means? Since since this tweet, though, the, the situation has evolved or devolved into... An EU-wide scandal, which, if anything, has showed the underlying weakness in EU leadership. But uh, at least to me, the real question is here. How did Erdogan, who is negotiating with the EU from a position of relative weakness, how does he, by simply removing one chair, spark this EU-wide controversy?
1: Yeah, I agree. Actually, it's a very good question that we have to, however, look at uh, from a deeper angle. I think, first of all, you made an important observation, which is that the EU is not as unified as we would like to think. So it has these institutions that are meant to be in this constant bureaucratic war over who gets to do what. So this is how it's designed. So but when we look at Leyen and Charles Michel, they are both representing the European Union. And one still has to ask why it was necessary in the first place to send two representatives. I mean, they were not the boss and his assistant. There was no hierarchical difference between the two of them. So it was rather a case similar. (laughs) I don't know, to me not trusting you to make our McDonald's (laughs) order. (laughs) Because I know you like that barbecue sauce. And so we end up both going to the counter because we don't trust each other.
0: Uh, Every time I talk to one of you Europeans, it's always McDonald's, this barbecue sauce. You know there's more to the U.S. than than fast food? For instance, instance, there's this thing called the U.S. federal hierarchy, where we have this clearly defined uh, Mm commander-in-chief, unlike the EU, where you never know who's in charge. As Kissinger once put it, who do you call if you call Europe?
1: I don't know, Ghostbusters, maybe.
0: (laughs) Very funny. So... Uh, I guess in that in that same vein, you could also say that there's a specter haunting Europe here. Uh, but uh, what you mean is that there's that you saw this conflict the other day, and that it had less to do with gender dynamics and more to do with this structural rivalry between the EU Commission and the Council. And I, mm-hmm. I think this is especially true in the domain of foreign affairs, where sovereignty is the golden issue and every institution wants a share of its competence so it's not surprising to see then uh these two stepping on each other's toes pointing fingers casting aspersions uh, because it was never really clear who who did what who should take the high chair and who should yeah the
1: sofa. and erdogan understands these divisions all too well yeah. which is perhaps why he was able to create this situation in the first place and why charles michel actually took the bait
0: So what do you you think Erdogan wanted to accomplish with this, besides making the EU look bad?
1: Yeah, well, I think, uh, first of all, it does not even matter whether Erdogan actually planned it or not. He might have done it, but uh, our focus on him as the bad guy, I think it distracts us a little bit from something that matters more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the fact that there was already the opportunity for him to stir this controversy. So there was this sensitive nerve, within the EU that was ready to be pinched yeah. and it exploded so you know it's like when you're driving and some guy cuts you off and you explode with rage uh, he might have wanted to do it maybe not but the fact remains that you were completely predisposed to erupt mm-hmm. in a road rage so the event was simply an opportunity for these tensions to come out
0: so i guess that means that uh it's best to say that this was symptomatic of uh, of Chronic, internal
1: yeah. EU problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think when there are symptoms, we're supposed to seek a proper critical mm-hmm. diagnosis. So then uh, it is because of this psychological state that the union is in that we had to witness a rather embarrassing event.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you'd think in normal in normal times, the EU would be able to, to dictate term, terms of engagement. Uh, I mean, considering the EU's huge relative advantage to Turkey. Now, I would say normally it could do this, but uh, it's a special case with Turkey, and the EU is in a bit of an awkward position here. Uh, now, in a strategic sense, the EU is the dominant power, like I said, uh, in, but tactically, uh, the EU isn't willing to, to get in a petty conflict with Erdogan and start a conflict with Turkey when it doesn't have
1: to. So you mean the EU has some dependencies on Turkey?
0: Yeah, yeah I, you could definitely say that. And I think one good example we can look at here is probably the EU-Turkey migration deal, mm-hmm. uh, where, in which basically the EU pays Turkey 3 billion, or paid Turkey 3 billion euros. In exchange, Turkey would deal with incoming refugees and prevent them from crossing into the EU. If you remember, I think... Um, in the spring of, uh, of 2020, there was a conflict mm-hmm. on the Greek-Turkish border involving uh, migrants, and this was a power play by Erdogan to kind of uh, impress upon the EU the importance of this deal and that yeah. they will, he will yeah. unleash a horde of immigrants if, uh, if the EU doesn't uh, do what he wants. And so that, that just shows the dependency there.
1: Yeah, and for several EU citizens, that's something that would certainly strike a chord, and so it's very politically relevant. So, and also, I think that's why the EU countries wish they could have also some reliable, stable partner down south in North Africa. Yeah, we could easily predict a similar deal being struck with the likes of Libya.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I always, I always like, I always say that in Libya, at this point, there's only one functional institution, and it's the coast guard because the EU pays for it. <laughs> But coming from a, a normative power like the EU, which likes to maintain this image of, of correctness and, uh, and uh, benevolence, it, it, these kind of deals, like like with Turkey here over immigration, it, it, it really doesn't look good. It's it's a bit hypocritical. Not to mention, we have no idea how that money was spent once it left the EU. What Tur- what Erdogan chose to do with it, uh, and the result is. Uh, that the EU needs Turkey to stop the flow of uh, irregular migrants. Now there's a dependency on that. And to make sure there's not another political crisis in general like in 2015, because clearly that shook the EU uh, quite strongly. But, uh, but moreover, Turkey is well aware of its position and its you know, influence in the EU, given these dependencies, like we saw last spring.
1: But to be fair, this isn't just a particular EU phenomenon.
0: No, uh, no. In, in, in the same in the same vein, uh, this trend is also seen with respects to NATO, um, yeah. where we yeah. have this, uh, on the outside at least, this alliance of liberal democratic states. Uh, but in the midst of this round table, there's also Turkey. And this has less to do with shared values of democracy and liberal solidarity. Uh, and this is because... Turkey's membership in NATO remains to this day because of its geostrategic importance to the to the pact. Now, in the times of the in the times of the Soviet Union, uh, Turkey was right on the doorstep, and uh, the, uh, NATO was able to put uh, nuclear weapons in Turkey uh, to counter the the Soviets. Now, today we have a similar situation where this key key strategic position allows allows Turkey to decide whether Russian submarines can make it into the Mediterranean or not. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of an, an absurd position, really, uh, if you compare it to, like, Lord of the Rings, for instance. When the council met to decide what to do with the ring, they would have also invited Sorma, who's not a very liberal guy in comparison. Uh, but it was only because Isengard was the key to reaching Mordor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think I think Boromir actually commented on this. He said, one does not simply alienate the Bosphorus Strait.
1: <laughs> That's a well-known quote by <laughs> Boromir. <laughs> but you, you are certainly on point when you identify these, uh, these dependencies that the EU has. So uh, on the one hand, let's put it this way. We all know how much the EU prides itself on fundamental mm-hmm. human rights and all that, right? but on the other hand uh, within the same liberal democratic doctrine it also promises such things as a free market utopia Mm -hmm. so there can be wealth and prosperity that is promised for every person and also uh, there are these values that are supposedly enforceable through the market so think of the cliche recourse to sanctions for example even against turkey Mm -hmm. itself so uh, in other words, the EU's soft power consists in its spreading human rights and equality across the world. But since its leverage in international relations, its its relative economic might, mm-hmm. by succeeding in bringing prosperity to other parts of the world, it would have to lose that same relative power. Yeah. So. It certainly doesn't want to lose that power and influence. Otherwise, it will not manage to accomplish this project. So we can see here that the EU's identity has this paradoxical element in it.
0: So, so on, one, on one side, it preaches liberal values, which is all well and good, but they're countered at the same time by uh, a certain pragmatism, economic at its core, which yeah. is itself more or less antithetical ...to the social and moral standards which the EU wants to embody and uphold and spread. yeah. So you get this paradox because of that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to okay. say. And the compromises that the EU has held on to this dream of prosperity... ...we all know it, but uh, it simply centralized it within its borders. Okay. So this means that individuals from third countries, they are still convinced by this dream... But the problem is that they just see it from the other side of the fence. So they have no other choice than to cross over that border. So since the EU cannot share this prosperity with everyone, Mm -hmm. but it also cannot stop them from claiming it because this is every single person fundamental human right, Mm -hmm. it needs someone, uh, somebody else needs Uh someone like Erdogan.
0: (laughs) To take care of the dirty laundry, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, so this diagnosis is, in essence, that there has to be, uh, I guess, a Faustian deal that a liberal democracy or a liberal organization like the EU has to make with, mm-hmm. uh, quote unquote, illiberal regimes in order to conceal these inherent inconsistencies. Uh, but does that mean then that, there, that there's really no hope for the EU as a, as a liberal project, as a liberal democratic project? not to mention uh, being able to export these values to other countries, or does it even raise the question of whether the EU is going to maintain its position globally, or whether these inconsistencies or paradoxes at its core are going to really um, hamstring the EU's uh, negotiating power?
1: very well put and there are certainly critical difficulties and they place uh, moral and i think also an existential burden on the eu's project Mm -hmm. Uh, the reason why it's important to reflect at the eu uh, specifically in this political debacle is that not only its values but also its function is based on liberal doctrine so we have the free market individual freedoms we are always talking about the notion of freedom right And this is also what unites the EU members. And obviously, this is the identity that it holds when it tries to deal with its neighbors. So Mm -hmm. it tries to present itself as a united union. And the identity of this union is uh, primarily and principally the fact that we are united around these freedoms that we're declaring.
0: So just to clarify here, we're referring to the EU as as an institutional framework based on these liberal ideals like the free market like you said uh and then in the international community the eu leverages this economic and political influence when it negotiates what you would might call a soft power approach Mm -hmm. to diplomacy
1: right yeah and this is where it actually gets tricky for such an entity also for its individual member states Uh, this is because it has to as we said earlier it has to stick to these ideals which are necessary for diplomacy and uh, if that is where its influence comes from then it cannot undermine these values it cannot look bad because uh, its actions are seen by the rest of the world so it has to cooperate but also it has to uphold these ideals as you said this is a perfect faustian deal so This actually reminds me of something the political philosopher uh, John Rawls talked about in the 1990s. So he presented or he tried to provide us groundwork for a foreign policy that uh, liberal states or peoples should apply. (laughs) So uh, if I can go a little bit into this, uh, Rawls envisioned a realistic utopia, right? Where liberal and non-liberal states, so let's think of the EU and Turkey uh they can coexist so the reason why this is possible according to him at least is because he considers that both practice some form of justice so when they meet they have some form of groundwork that they can still agree on and this is uh, primarily the fact that they have laws they have hierarchies and they can communicate on those grounds so this is the important point now that Rawls builds a vision by which there can be mutual toleration between these two states so they can coexist because they tolerate each other mm-hmm. at the same time though role sees the liberal side as having a uh, higher moral ground still so it's because of these freedoms that we mentioned and because of this higher legitimacy it can pursue the goal of transmitting these liberal values mm-hmm. to the non-liberal state so the goal is that by cooperating they will see how better we are at least in terms of values and uh, it's kind of like hey look at us look how much better we have it here why don't you look at, do it li- do it like us just try it out
0: <laughs> well uh, look at what we see here between the EU and Turkey then in light of this now clearly uh, the EU presents itself as the liberal in this relationship and maybe like you say in ideal terms it would like for Turkey to be liberal as well because it's the it's the ultimate form the the end of evolution of political evolution Mm -hmm. but in practice we see actually the opposite like i said there's this faustian deal where the eu admits implicitly admits that it needs turkey to play in a liberal role so it needs turkey to stay on a lower moral level which is really unusual but it's it's what's what's it's what we see uh, and I think, uh, and even on a f- more fundamental level, this kind of liberal regime like the EU needs someone who can take the blame or someone they can look down on to compare themselves and to say that we are actually liberal. Otherwise, you lose perspective on what actually is being progressive mm-hmm. or not. But at the same time, Turkey uh, becomes a big player in EU politics. So there's a trade-off. In some ways, each side benefits. It's not, it's not just the EU Benefiting ideologically, I guess. Uh, So, Turkey to the EU is this useful, if not necessary, pain in the ass. And then to Turkey, the EU is this um, dependent benefactor, cash cow, however you want to put it. they, they, They get a lot of benefits.
1: Yeah, and uh, that is the paradox, in fact. So the EU is definitely playing the role of this liberal normative Mm -hmm. power, just like Rawls thought that a respectable society should do, right? Except for the part where you delegate your dirty deeds. So there is uh, an equilibrium that is established that Rawls didn't count on in this case. It seems like the EU is quite happy uh, to have this inconvenience. So... I think there is a fundamentally problematic starting point now for the self-image of well, both the EU and uh, from the practical uh, side, also the liberal society that Rawls envision. So if we have a look at uh, this society that Rawls presents to us, there is this implicit assumption that the liberal force is always at an advantage, if not, uh, I guess we can say uh, predestined to triumph so in this position i cannot help but notice the attitude of liberalism being uh, you know the 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 typical end of history uh-huh. which is um, very a very typical liberal attitude
0: so so you're saying that uh that then maybe the eu is taking its idea of destiny a little too seriously in its negotiations
1: Yeah, it takes a linear approach where we are as liberals, the last stage of social and cultural, ideological evolution and the other authoritarian regimes, they are still one stage behind us and simply have to be like us by getting exposed to us. You know, if only they could see the light, but. This position does not consider the power of contingency in historical development, so there are many things that could go in one way or another to the point that we might not even recognize the, the old system. Also, secondly, I have to add that I cannot help but notice that Rose envisions liberals to wield more power and influence, perhaps due to being uh, the old empires of the West. Perhaps it's a case of Western exceptionalism, I don't know, but... Uh, as a normative power that cannot admit its dependencies on its moral adversaries, it has to focus on its image nonetheless. So there can be no wrinkles that have to be shown here. So these dependencies have to, we have to all pretend that they do not exist. And when one approaches foreign policy from this self centered position, I think they're bound to have this. This ego diminished by events that could not have been predicted, as I said. And this is typically neglected by this linear approach. So
0: what do you mean by by ego uh, in this sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, in the psychoanalytic sense, uh, there's this image that one identifies with. There's this ideal ego that uh, one would like to see when they look into the mirror. Hmm. And uh, so in this sofa gate, for example, we had this one missing chair and this tiny event that we're talking about uh brought to the surface the fragility of the eu so this was a contingency that mm-hmm. shocked the eu's eco and it is why at least in my view uh, it does a bit of a disservice to analyze such a fragile moment for the union from the limited narrative of uh, you know this uh, dictator who represents patriarchy and we are against patriarchy and uh, i think such an approach you know, given that the EU's own liberal doctrine has undercover structurally, structural dependencies on a liberal state, uh, it fails to see the symptom that we're talking about here. Yeah,
0: yeah. But, you know, but at the same time, I think it makes a lot of sense why van der Leyen would come out with this particular spin on the situation. First off, like you said, dealing openly with Erdogan's regime looks bad uh, because... There's this necessity to direct the illiberal towards the liberal light, Uh, but actually this meeting was originally intended to reinforce the EU and Turkey's strategic relationship. So this really sidelined any debate about uh, normative or ethical issues. um,
1: Mm, Such as what, for example?
0: uh, look, at, look at gender rights, for instance, since you mentioned that. Uh, after the Turkish government backed out of the Istanbul Convention, which is a convention that established a legal framework for prosecuting and stopping violence against women, uh, after they backed out of that last year, you'd think the EU would apply more pressure on these key human rights issues, mm-hmm. but no. <laughs> but no, that issue was sidelined, and uh, the discussion points of the meeting that happened were had, more than anything else, had to do with continuing the migrant treaty, which itself is a morally questionable negotiation. Now, uh, But the second point, and this is maybe one of those inevitable contingencies you mentioned, uh, is that on top of this, there was also a lot of negative publicity. So not only were the negotiations with a persona non grata, like, like Erdogan, who is antithetical to the moral high ground that the EU wants to maintain. But they also had this br- humiliating breakdown in communications within the EU, and this showed a lack of solidarity in, in leadership. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so, to me, then it made a lot of sense why Vandalin would come out with this uh, issue of discrimination. Well, I, on some level, it was it was probably true. There is, I mean, given the context, yeah, uh, yeah. But it was also a very convenient. Uh, uh, distraction for the media, which drew their attention away from one, the inadvertently publicized, highly suspicious negotiations with the dictator, as well as explain or um, distract from uh, this very public display of disunity within EU leadership, which is another big issue.
1: Yeah, yeah, I see. Uh-huh.
0: So, uh, and I guess here it's also important to add that there was actually hardly any media coverage of what the what they actually talked about at the meeting uh, what the main objectives were uh, and what the outcome was because uh, we, we what isn't mentioned is that the meeting actually continued even with the whole sofa chair issue discrepancy but uh, but the the, the the misdirection in the media was I guess then a complete success because all the talk was about sofas so it, it, it function very well
1: i think this can be applied to not just an isolated case such as this one but uh, from the ideological point of view on the entire neoliberal approach Hmm. so in the west uh, we engage in these lofty ideals that many times simply cannot be realized for example We have these rituals based on uh, these uh, things such as freedom, individual rights, uh, I don't know, uh, cruelty-free cookies that you can buy. And they are enough of a spectacle that that we don't even have to think about uh, what might be further behind these curtains. Uh
0: So, I guess the question is, in in this context, are, are Europeans in the West really dissatisfied uh with the the human rights violations being carried out in their close neighbors i mean um or, or 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 are they willing to 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 stay blind to these issues to keep on living their living in denial of the of the cost of their standard of living and their moral high ground so and and if if they are not if they are um uh Dissatisfied, actually, with with this. If they if they do reject uh, these negotiations, then why wasn't this meeting with Erdogan used as an opportunity to engage with these relevant topics on on rights and moral issues? And because in reality, it was just again another pragmatic discussion. So it shows that there, that there is some willingness for, for, for Europe to be blind to the costs of its position.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And so far, the big question has received a very pragmatic answer and one can expect this, right? So the answer is that when push comes to shove and uh, these promises that we always believe in have to confront their limits, maybe even contradictions Mm -hmm. so in order for the dream to live on uh, the dirty deeds have remained for the most part at least under the rug so the challenge of liberalism and by extension the eu as it stands it is that they they are caught in this paradox so they rely on a very noble image but to maintain this image, their alter ego has to absorb the blame, kind of like a Dorian Gray's picture. <laughs> so, so what we engage in is just this fanfare celebrating these values that we compromise uh, on a daily mm-hmm. basis.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I guess I, I can't complain too much in that case because I also compromise on my
1: values on a daily basis. Yeah, like
0: what? <laughs> well, talking about cruelty-free cookies, uh, I do sometimes eat Nestle products, for instance.
1: Well, at least you don't publish it on your newsfeed each time you buy this it, fair, fair trade cacao.
0: Yeah, well, at least I, I don't post anything on, on social media and it saves me from taking sides. I, uh-huh. I try to be an enlightened centrist as much as I can.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the ideal citizen we're talking about, <sighs> isn't it? <laughs> well, depoliticized and, uh, well, vocal only about the things that everyone has already agreed on.
0: <laughs> hey, man, I, I just do what it takes to, to get by without being thrown under the bus every day.
1: No, no, we certainly need you for a future (laughs) podcast. (laughs) So this has been Nathan and Walter bringing you No Cheese Talk. We hope you enjoyed listening to our discussion and stay tuned for more. And I felt alone as a woman and as a European because it is not about seating arrangements or protocol. This goes to the core of who we are. This goes to the values our union stands for.